Thanksgiving, we take time to express gratitude for those who have enriched our lives. A popular movement is encouraging us to make this aspect of Thanksgiving year-round. They recommend that we practice gratitude as a means to achieving psychological well-being, among other ends. The practice consists of consciously naming the good things in one's life, usually the benefits one has received from other people. To what extent does this proposal get gratitude right? What is gratitude, really, and why is it so important in our mental lives? Today, we'll try to tackle some of these questions. Welcome to New Ideal, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ben Bayer, fellow at ARI, and with me is Dr. Gina Gorlin, clinical associate professor in the Department of Psychology at U University of Texas, and she's also a longtime friend of the Institute. So welcome, Gina. Thank you, Ben. Happy to be here. I'm grateful for the invitation. <laughs> grateful to have you. So <laughs> I just wanted to start by saying a few things about how I first heard about this movement. On my own, I, I first started seeing certain friends on social media posting what I later learned were gratitude journal entries uh, as uh, social media posts where they were saying what they were thankful for in life and probably part of a therapeutic practice in their case. I then started seeing more frequent mention of this practice, I, th I think, during the darker days of the pandemic, where I think a lot of us uh, needed to be looking at what was good in life. And eventually, I came across some uh, essays, theoretical articles by psychologists like someone named Robert Emmons and other people who worked with him at a place called the Greater Good Science Center at Berkeley. Last year for Thanksgiving, I wrote an article about some problems I saw with the way many people in this movement framed the issue of gratitude. They kind of equated it with humility, which I think is a, a big mistake, and we'll probably talk a little bit about that later. But leaving aside that framing, uh, gratitude does seem like a really important thing in life, not just for psychological reasons, but for reasons of uh, justice and morality. And so I thought we should get clear on what exactly gratitude is and uh, what role is it playing in some of these psychological exercises that the gratitude movement people are talking about. Just to make things really concrete for people to so they can understand what the, the practice of gratitude is supposed to involve according to the people who are behind this movement. Uh, I found a worksheet uh, from an uh, organization called the Gratitude Project. It's one of the uh, organizations associated with that Berkeley Center. And here's an example of the instructions that they give in one of the exercises. So they say, each day for at least one week, write down three things that went well for you that day and provide an explanation for why they went well. It's important to create a physical record, so be sure to write down what, what, what went well. Don't simply do the exercise in your head. Uh, and they go on. Um, the, the idea is for you to notice what's good in life. And there are a variety of different permutations and uh, different ways this gets uh, practiced, sometimes in combination with kinds of meditation. Sometimes you're asked to imagine what your life would be like without certain good things in it. Sometimes you're asked to write letters to people that you'd be grateful for. So uh, is, this a, is this an accurate summary of what the uh, gratitude movement is asking people to do, what the practice involves? Uh, what's, what's your... Uh, 
your take on on whether this is the way that they actually ask us to do it, and is there a, is there a unified approach here, or is it a is it a mixture? What would you say? Sure. So the prompt you read is a good example of one of a few key gratitude practices that's really coming from the positive psychology movement as part of a larger arsenal of tools for for really engaging with the positive side of life right including what we value and what kind of optimistic vision for the future drives us forward and what is meaningful and important to us in life right so this is part of a broader movement that really aims to shift the focus from symptom reduction from alleviating distress alleviating suffering right which this movement views as a kind of reductionistic uh, vision for well-being right and for human flourishing and so the focus then is put at least as much or more on what do you want to build what do you want to savor right what do you want your life to be about and so within that context there's this toolkit and what you mentioned which i think goes by the name three good things is one of the really commonly used exercises as part of this toolkit there are also uh, other forms of gratitude listing exercises or gratitude journals and then there are these more expressive or more active interventions that encourage you to actually write a letter to someone you value explaining why you're grateful for them and then deliver the letter and interventions that include that delivery component seem to have the strongest effects on happiness, well-being, positive mood, self-confidence, um, things like that. So how often do you as a therapist recommend this kind of practice to your, to your patients? And uh, is there a certain sort of patient for whom it's especially useful? Yeah, I mean, I just, I want to start by saying, before we get too far into this discussion, that the core of this practice is fundamentally good. And for whatever theoretical claims this movement gets wrong, and of course, it's a mixed bag of, of theoretical claims as anything in mainstream, you know, academic uh, literature is going to be. But I think what the exercise is actually doing is really important and good. And it's, that's the case, both at the broad level of attending to things you're grateful for, which another way of putting that is attending to things that you value, right? attending to things that you love, things that you appreciate in your life. It's becoming very conscious. Right? It's making a conscious point of really identifying and relishing the values in your life. And I think from an objectivist standpoint, we can see how important that is right? and how psychologically and I think existentially key to maintaining the kind of benevolent universe premise and the kind of action orientation, right, that uh, that we value so much um, within our community. So that's one thing. And then the more specific orientation toward thinking about what you value in other people and what other people in your life are bringing to your life, I think is also a really tremendous source of value because human beings, to the extent of their virtues and you know, and rationality are are incomparable sources of value in a selfish person's life. And that value, we don't reap it automatically, right? And so really pausing to think about it and making a routine of 
thinking about and expressing what is the good that we see right, in the people we value in our lives and and very actively and honoring it and reciprocating it. I think that that enriches our lives tremendously. So more we can say about that. But to your more specific question of how do I use it or variants of this tool in my interventions, I'd say all kinds of ways depending on the context. So at one level, so when I, anybody I work with who is dealing with depression, some form of conscious attention to positives is essential to any form of treatment that I might do because part and parcel of depression is a discounting and a kind of selective either ignoring or under uh, kind of undervaluing successes and positive outcomes and and really orienting away from values and toward losses and failures and uh, and pain and so we know from research and i know from you know, philosophy converges with with clinical psychology and practice on this that you've got to be able to form a, a full objective picture of the world you live in which in the case of someone who's depressed you have to actively and consciously work to include the good because it's getting selectively omitted and also that what's important in life is the pursuit of values right the good is what's important right evil is impotent kind of the whole idea of the benevolent universe premise in objectivism it gets cashed out for me clinically in the very concrete tangible ways that i help somebody to notice and to very consciously orient toward what other people are doing well and how they're doing it and the effort that goes into doing it right and what they're doing well and how they're doing it and the ways in which it's not automatic the ways in which there's agency involved and just all that there is to savor and enjoy in our lives i mean happiness is our moral purpose happiness comes from the pursuit and savoring right and enjoyment of values and so for example when i work with depressed patients given that depression has selective focus on negatives and discounting of positives as a core defining feature i inevitably implement some form of this type of positive event listing and attention to positives with pretty much anyone i work with on that kind of, you know depressive continuum and so in some cases that might take the form of just very generally logging the good things that happen you know what went well today what was a victory what was a learning right and even when logging negative events which is much easier for someone who's currently depressed really then also extracting from that negative event what about this was valuable to you right what did you take from it what is something that went better about you know this time than last time so that's one broad way that i implement this type of practice and then for any client or patient with a malevolent streak in other words a tendency to regard other people as generally nuisances or as generally irrational in ways that are you know, potent in our lives or, or focusing on the evil focusing on the petty and not really fully reaping the tremendous value that 
other humans can provide. For those kinds of clients, I really try to tailor the kinds of experiences and observations I ask them to collect, whether in writing, whether through these kinds of, you know, kind of mindful attention practices, I tailor it to what it is that they need to see and to appreciate more of. And so in some cases I may really have them run interpersonal exercises or experiments where, you know, they have a tough conversation and they really try to catalog kind of what are the best case scenarios here for why this person might have said these things or why this person might be upset, right? Like what might the person value? What might the person be needing? What might be a virtue from which this particular misunderstanding or frustration arises? And, and in some cases, just very literally having people do the sort of thing that the gratitude literature recommends, like write a note of appreciation and actually go and deliver it um, and be vulnerable in the way you know, really let somebody know how much you care oftentimes that forms an important part of my coaching and therapy in that it's what valuing other human beings looks like and it yields unexpected rewards and it's often really scary to do at least at first is there is there a way that you make concretely real to them the kind of psychological benefits that are likely to come from um, making this top of mind yeah, at the broadest level, I help clients to appreciate the ways in which their own goals for treatment or their goals for coaching depend upon a conscious and purposeful orientation toward values, right? So insofar as they already have some buy-in, and if not, then it, that's one of my first tasks is to get buy-in to the idea that life is about pursuing and enjoying values. It's about building things. It's about it's about filling every moment, you know, at every hour and day and year, with the kind of joy that is distinctly yours. And so, once we've established that shared context, that you want not just to get rid of pain, but you want to achieve and experience joy, then it's a very natural bridge from there to to appreciate how that this is an active conscious process, not just the kind of working to acquire the good things in your life, but also experiencing them, right? And even to know what to work for, you need some awareness of what brings you joy and what about the times that you have felt most connected to your loved ones or the times that you felt most fulfilled in your work. Like what about those times made them so enjoyable, so fulfilling? Why are those the moments you wouldn't take back? If we want to give you more of that, right? If we want to build on the successes and the kind of the value you've already reaped in order for you to be able to con construct your best life. And so from there, you know, I help people to really focus on, to gather data about the things that are meaningful to them and why those things are meaningful. And often that includes a very special focus on the people. You know, like, why is this person so important and meaningful in your life? What is it about them? And how do you notice that those virtues, you know, or those qualities showing up in the, in your day-to-day -day life or in their, you know, day-to-day -day interactions with you? I like so how you, you emphasized the special focus 
on other people. And that, that relates to something that I wanted to ask about, about the way the people who advocate the practice of, of gratitude conceptualize what they're doing. So if you, if you look in the way they recommend the gratitude journals actually work, you see them asking for you to list all kinds of good things in life, everything from it was, uh, there was nice weather out today, there was sunlight, uh, to here are the good things that other people did for me, uh, and a whole, whole range of examples within that. But if we want to get really clear on what gratitude is, it seems we should be we should be distinguishing it from things in life that are uh, natural goods as opposed to the, the the good that comes from other people. And they seem to run all of these things together. There's another distinction I want to talk about that they don't quite make. But but do you have thoughts on the issue of the uh, how they how they run these together and how important it is not to do that? Yeah, I mean, definitely they get run together sometimes, but they also sometimes get distinguished. And I think if we're on the premise of trying to reap the most value we can from the existing literature and from the existing practices out there, while, of course, thinking about them independently, right, and with a critical eye, I think we want to we want to seek out the best versions of what's out there and then make it better by applying our own understanding and frameworks to it. The best things out there make pretty clear distinctions. In fact, I recall in one paper that reviews the gratitude literature, there's a scale that is discussed in terms of its predictive power for you know, like whether trait gratitude is associated with various positive outcomes and the scale itself is broken into three subcomponents or subscales one of which is simple appreciation and that includes things like you stop and smell the roses in effect you you try to savor whatever good things happen to you in life it's a very generic kind of noticing positivity right or noticing the good and then there's a separate subscale specifically for appreciating other people and that has items like, you know, I'm very thankful for my friends and family. I am aware and very appreciative of the contributions that others have made to my, to my current well-being and flourishing, things like that. Yeah, it seems like it really is important and good if they are distinguishing uh, between these types of appreciation because it, it amounts to the distinction between uh, the appreciation for what's metaphysically given in life and what's man-made. That's the terminology that Ayn Rand used. And one reason that distinction is important, I would think, from her perspective, is that the, the man-made is the chosen. It's, it's what other people do for you or for uh, uh, the world that they didn't have to do that uh, requires uh, motivation on their part. And so part of the function of expressing gratitude is to encourage them to keep making that choice. And that's what the virtue of justice is all about. You know, versus what's metaphysically given, uh, the sunlight doesn't have a choice about whether it's going to make your day bright, it's going to do that whether, it, whether you know, regardless of your choice, regardless of your gratitude, you can't deliver a gratitude letter to the sunlight, um, but, the people, but the people actually need the justice that comes from that letter. Yeah, yeah, and I think, I mean, it's worth noting, again, to speak to some of the better aspects of this 
movement and this literature. One representative finding that's coming to mind, and I think this was actually from Emmons and, uh, and from his research group, was that people higher on this gratitude trait, as understood by, uh, by this community, actually are more likely to perceive the help that they get from other people as, quote, autonomously motivated, as opposed to being more compulsory or more externally controlled. So what that suggests and what that means that these researchers care about is do you appreciate the volition right? and do you appreciate the choice involved in the goodwill that others extend to you, right? And in the benefits that they confer on your life and that there's a real positive emphasis on people's mutually voluntary exchange of goods that comes from a place of valuing and benevolence rather than rather than compulsion and and the ways that that's different from the kinds of things we can just take for granted in nature another reason it seems important to me to make this distinction is that you mentioned previously that you recommended the practice of gratitude for depressed patients especially ones who have a malevolent streak. And there I assume you're referring to something like what Ayn Rand called the malevolent universe premise, where you think values aren't mm -hmm. achievable in this world. And if you look at her portrayal of that, the way that premise works in the life of certain of her characters, for example, uh, Dominique and Wynand in The Fountainhead, there it seems like the reason they think the universe is out to stop the pursuit of values is informed a lot by the way they've observed other people. They've, they, they have a view that evil is powerful. And so a focus on the good choices that are made by people would seem to have some real relevance for undermining that way of looking at the world. If, if the reason you think so, uh, so fearfully about the universe is really because of the way other people act in it, then it's probably because you're not looking at the good choices that other people are making too. Yeah, yeah. And that also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy insofar as you're then less likely to seek out connection with other people. You're less likely to open up to them, right? You're less likely to try to engage in deeper, more meaningful interactions, right? You're more likely to treat those relationships as purely transactional or try to just say the bare minimum to get what you need, right? To, to kind of treat people the way that you imagine somebody who's petty and, and irrational and cruel would either treat you or would want to be, or deserve to be treated. and you get less back as a result. And then that both reinforces that underlying, they used to call it MUP, right? The malevolent universe premise. And it just really narrows the scope of the kinds of values that you get to enjoy in your life. So another issue I wanted to discuss about understanding what gratitude is and what it isn't is the distinction between gratitude and shall we say, uh, taking pride in one's own achievements. When I saw people practicing this publicly, writing, you know, sharing their journal entries, they would say things like, I'm grateful for uh, choices that I made in life that have put me where I am. And it, what struck me was, well, that's not, that's a different thing than gratitude. That's uh, not something you're saying thank you to somebody else for. It's something you're saying thank you to yourself for. And Part of the reason I think it's important to bring out the difference is that in the in that theoretical work, especially by Emmons, he he equates very explicitly 
the practice of gratitude with a, a kind of humility. He says it's a recognition that we are dependent on others and we don't, we don't, uh, we're, we never really create ourselves. And uh, I know there are other people in the movement who push back against that and who say, no, it's not all about uh, negating yourself, but uh, that framing is still there and I think it needs to be addressed. And, and, and can you say something about the, uh, the way you, uh, for example, recommend this practice in a way that uh, relates and differentiates from taking pride? Yeah, I mean, so I'll be completely candid. I think, sure, the, the unhealthy perspective you're talking about is out there and, you know, it's in the mainstream culture, this idea that it's somehow not up to us, right, that we didn't build it, that we should feel ourselves beholden to all the other people who've made all the good things happen at our own expense. But I just don't see that as a salient feature of at least the clinical applications of this kind of practice. And I think at least when we, within our community of you know countercultural objectivists and egoists, when we think about this type of literature and what to make of it, I think it's a little bit of a straw man to focus on the parts that sound humble and to focus on those at the cost of really appreciating the fundamental and deep importance of recognizing other people's achievements and recognizing what other people have in fact contributed to our lives. And Montessori is really good on this right? and really holds this reverence for humanity and for you know the giants whose shoulders we stand on and for all the ways that we benefit from the thinking and the courage and the effort of people long gone that that is she views this as core to forming our own character and to forming our own sense of competence and agency and i think she's right about that i think there's something really deeply true there and i also think of the email Steve Jobs wrote to himself, if anyone hasn't seen this circulating on the internet, I highly recommend it. It tears me up every time. Where, and this is when he's close to his deathbed, he knows that his days are numbered and it's a kind of pep talk to himself. Can I just read it? Yeah, it's pretty short, I have it open here. So literally he wrote himself an email on September 2nd, 2010. And this is what it says. I grow little of the food I eat. And of the little I do grow, I did not breed or perfect the seeds. I do not make any of my own clothing. I speak a language I did not invent or refine. I did not discover the mathematics I use. I am protected by freedoms and laws I did not conceive of or legislate and do not enforce or adjudicate. I am moved by music I did not create myself. When I needed medical attention, I was helpless to help myself survive. I did not invent the transistor, the microprocessor, object-oriented programming, or most of the technology I work with. I love and admire my species, living and dead, and am totally dependent on them for my life and well-being. Now, you could read that as an expression of the very sentiment that you were critiquing, Ben. And I think that that would just be the dead wrong reading, especially knowing what we know of Steve Jobs and of the ways that he owned and took pride of his achievements. I don't think this was a man who who can be accused of humility or you know false modesty he's writing this to himself to help him remember 
what an incredibly heroic species right he belongs to and to to savor it to appreciate it to love it to fill the remainder of his days with the due admiration and spirited engagement with the best of humankind and i think we can all use more of that kind of awareness and one thing that strikes me is expressing gratitude is itself an aspect of pride insofar as you are yeah. strong enough and clear thinking enough to realize the I mean, you're taking pride in your ability to recognize what's good in life and taking pride in your ability to recognize where it comes from. And that's an exercise generally of objectivity. You you are naming the facts for what they are and you have the strength to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, this is where, again, I have to quote a more uh, local luminary, which is my own spouse, Matt Bateman, who wrote about this last year because I think he captures the importance of gratitude really well, it, particularly in the context of a Montessori pedagogy. But I think, you know, he's also drawing on philosophy here in a big way. And the way that he cashes it out is this is in a blog post called A Pedagogy of Gratitude. So I'm going to have to go ahead and plug it. And he starts out by noting that the act of appreciation, when it is an act, not a routine formality, is personal and elevating. To say thank you is a way to say I value you. It is to link your values to the deeds and characters of those at the receiving end of your thanks. To appreciate is to love, and what and who we love makes us who we are. And I think that that really speaks to what you were just getting at, Ben, that it's from our own virtues and from our own capacity, right? It's what Wynan talks about in The Fountainhead when he speaks of the things we say yes to are you know, as much or more an expression of who we are and what we love in ourselves as it is about the other person. So a lot of the examples we've just been talking about concern the importance of recognizing the real good that is in one's life that comes from other people. And people who are depressed in particular sometimes have a hard time seeing that. But one question that occurs to me here is what's the the limit of this, of the value of this kind of recognition for someone, let's say, who, who lives a life where uh, because of their misfortune uh, and because of the bad choices of other people, there, there really aren't any good people in their life or they're, they're very far away from the center of their life and, and where they've been a victim of injustice and uh, or they're a victim uh, of some kind of debilitating physical condition at one at what point is, do they need to stop the gratitude and start feeling angry and how how do you deal with that line how do you draw that line when you're when you're speaking with patients who are in that kind of situation yeah i think any psychologist worth their salt would tell you that these are not mutually exclusive pursuits you know, in the therapeutic context, and that, in, if anything, that they are actually complementary. That anger is a response to injustice and a response to the the violation right, of what one values. So anger comes from values, right? and and gratitude, appreciation, is a feeling of 
warmth and affection and well, I mean, gratitude is itself a feeling, right? Toward those values themselves. And I think clinically we find that the two in fact tend to go hand in hand. And so somebody who is really angry and has good reason to be angry, it's really important to acknowledge and to empathize with, right? And where appropriate to really morally side with whatever the legitimate grievances, right? The legitimate the losses and the injustices that a person has been the victim of, or in other cases, just to grieve with the person, you know, the more natural, but nonetheless tragic losses of, you know, whether it's someone with a terminal illness, whether it's someone who's grieving, you know, a death in their family, right? That it's really, really important not to skip over that step, right? That it's important to acknowledge reality and to be able to to grieve and to to name to call a spade a spade and to connect to why it matters in the first place right? and to connect to that for the sake of which you act upon your anger and your sense of injustice and those for the sake of whom it's still worth fighting and psychologically there are ways to do that more or less effectively. I mean, people think all the time about what are the things that I don't want to regret not having said or expressed, right? And what are the conversations that I don't want to regret not having had in time before before either, you know, I have to leave this earth or before the others involved are no longer around. And so I think it's as important in those contexts as ever. And we see evidence. I mean, that there are real, there are studies that have applied these sorts of positive psychology gratitude-based interventions to cancer patients to you know people with various uh, either terminal illnesses or in various bad spots and there's at least some promising signal there that it, you can deliver it quite effectively when you're dealing with someone who's depressed or uh, other kinds of anxiety issues is there any kind of benefit that comes from not just the recognition of what's good in life that they're overlooking by looking at what other people do for them, but can they also learn something about uh, what it took for other people to get to the point of achieving these good things in life that they were then able to share and then applying that lesson to their own life and, what, and, and modeling it? Absolutely. I think this is one of the core insights that Montessori is bringing to her focus on instilling awe and appreciation and gratitude in children and helping them to understand where things came from and understand the the toil and struggle, but also the ingenuity, right, the courage that people long dead have had to you know, put forth in order for us to enjoy all of these nice things. And I think a big part of what that's doing for us, how that's serving us morally and psychologically is that it also gives us an appreciation for our own powers, for our own agency, right? Because we're understand, we're coming to understand the ways in which human virtue and human intelligence has driven the progress and the abundance that that we see all around us and that also then helps us appreciate what we're capable of and the kind of work involved and the kinds of choices involved that you know things don't just 
come to be, right? And that human beings drive their own fates, human beings build and achieve. And hey, we're human beings. So, you know, what does that inspire us to build and achieve? Well, that's an excellent segue to the next question that I wanted to ask, which is that uh, it's possible to look at this movement to encourage not only psychological patients, but people more generally, it's possible to look at this and, and think, oh, they're making too much of gratitude. Is, really, is gratitude really that important? And we've talked about uh, ways you might ask that question, but it also strikes me that it's possible to look at the way they are encouraging us to practice gratitude and thinking they're not going far enough, that, that uh, we actually we live in we live in an unjust culture that that doesn't recognize some of the greatest beneficiaries of mankind that you were just that you were just mentioning and because it doesn't always recognize them in fact sometimes condemns them treats them as villains even when they're heroes they deserve more gratitude so obviously somebody who comes in uh who's depressed who needs uh needs therapeutic help I, I assume that the the main thing that you're trying to help them with is not to uh, render greater justice to uh, the the benefactors of mankind but and and they obviously probably need to work harder just to see the things that are more directly in their life that they should have gratitude for but is there anything that psychologists can be doing today or are doing to uh, maybe work on that longer term, wider scale cultural problem of a kind of cultural ingratitude for some of humanity's greatest benefactors. Yeah, I think this is where the distinct perspective Rand brings to the, the role of the productive builders and achievers, right, to the role of the human mind, I think it positions us to really champion and to really exemplify and to model the kind of gratitude and the objects of gratitude that absolutely get neglected and you know whose song does not get sung and that is to the detriment of us all, right? To the business heroes, to the inventors, to you know, those who today are largely getting blamed for all of the social ills that we see, despite the fact that we're using their platforms to bemoan everything that's wrong with <laughs> civilization and with their business practices, right? I mean, if you just look at you know, the threads on Twitter and Facebook, decrying all the ways that, you know, we're being sort of played or that our attention is being preyed on. And the only reason that we have these platforms is because of the you know, the profit motive, right? Because of the technological genius and and pluck, right? And innovative spirit of the very people often getting decried. And so I think bringing more awareness and more attention to to those unsung heroes is a really crucial and definitely you know, missed component of this broader toolkit. And I think we're well positioned to integrate what's best about existing psychological you know, insights and practices with this very distinctive perspective. 
on the role of the mind and the role of industry in particular. And you're in a you're in a a good position to actually work with some of the people who are doing this, as I understand, because you have a uh, one of your sub practices is working with founders of companies who I'm sure sometimes must internalize the cultures the culture's uh, view toward them, and that probably has consequences for some of the problems that they're facing. Is there anything you can share with your experience working with founders of companies in this regard? Yeah, this comes up, yeah, this comes up all the time in a lot of different problems. Just to, I guess share one recent example because it's come up a few times and so it's looming large in my mind where founders don't fully appreciate or endorse some of the best things about themselves and about what they're doing and that also manifests in a kind of in a kind of blind spot for the value and the achievement of others so i've had a lot of conversations lately uh, with company founders who are far enough along that they've got a pretty well-established company culture. They've got a team, it's a, you know, a small, but substantial enough team that there are managerial layers where, you know, there's a head of R and D and where a lot of what I'm hearing in the frustration of these founders is that they've worked really hard to establish a happy culture, a culture where there's work-life balance, where employees feel heard and they feel valued. And somehow that's translated into a culture of mediocrity. And it's really frustrating for them. Like people are going home at five, they're leaving tasks unfinished. They're not really meeting their OKRs, their objectives and key results. And they seem to think that, oh, well, it's not a big deal. We can always just you know, reset the target a little farther out. You know, startups are hard. And so nobody expects perfection, right? And the founders are hustling, right? The founders are always the first ones in, the last ones out. They're the ones who really own the outcomes and who know, who feel the stakes right, every day in the form of we're gonna die. We're gonna eventually have to lay these people off. We're gonna eventually have to you know, close our doors if we don't fulfill our promises to our investors and board members and stakeholders, right? But it doesn't seem like the rest of the company is that concerned. And the conversation I've often had it starts out just around what is keeping you from having these hard conversations? Because it seems like there's a lot of feedback that you would like to give, right? And you're not giving it, you're withholding it, or you're giving it, but in a kind of watered down way. Like it would be really nice if you would stick around until the task is done, or, you know, if you would come to us sooner when you're not meeting a certain objective, or, you know, like if you would show a little bit more ownership. But of course, you know, it's not the end of the world if you don't get it done or it, it, you know, the, what's the worst case scenario? Well, there really isn't one, right? The best case scenario is we'll promote you and we'll praise you, but there's really not much at stake. And, and what are they afraid of? Why not share those stakes you know, more freely? And founders will often express a kind of a fear of not just offending, right? But a fear that it's not going to be worth it anymore, that the, that they're, employer that their employees are there partly for for that sense of ease right and that their experience of enjoying the work of you know wanting to be part of this company 
is it's premised on well they value me meaning that they don't make me work too hard with that or they value me and therefore they're not gonna be they're not gonna kind of hold me to too exacting a bar and the way that i've often reframed this situation for people is what are you most grateful for when you look back on the best experiences that you've had professionally that have brought you to this point what are you grateful for about your own like the current experience of building the startup and it's precisely the stakes and it's precisely the fact that they own the outcomes and it's and it's having something worth coming in early and staying up late for having something worth all the stress and all the strife it's something being part of something magnificent being part of something incredibly exacting and hard and new and that's what you're denying your employees by cushioning them and by making it easy for them and what are they going to ultimately be more grateful for you know is it the opportunity to really experience being part of something important and big and hard or is it another nine to five job so i think that that really is a reorienting perspective that i find that a lot of founders really need so Gina, i think i'd like to start to wrap up and since we've been since we've been talking about uh, productive heroes and the kind of gratitude we should have toward them the kind of pride they should take in their own actions maybe a good way to wrap up is to comment on and discuss uh, there's a there's a passage from atlas shrugged which is about these kinds of productive heroes and and it's a passage about the fact of gratitude so there's a scene toward the end of the novel where one of the characters hank reardon has just saved the life of the hero of the hero of the story uh john galt and reardon echoes something that uh had been mentioned earlier in the novel he says if you understood that i acted for my own sake in saving your life you know that no gratitude is required and galt responds the one who's been saying thank you for saving my life says that is why i thank you so do you have uh thoughts on this passage and 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 what it says about the nature of gratitude and maybe how it connects to some of the other things we've been discussing yeah i mean i think the idea that gratitude is selfish as much as it is an appreciation for what is best what is most virtuous most inspiring in other people which is also selfish right i think that framing is really really key to understanding the value the need that each of us has for it in our lives that when we think back to the founders that I was talking about, you know, and the founders who they're confused as to why their employees don't seem to be that inspired, in effect, you know, to work and to deliver outcomes. And at the same time, when they think about what their employer employees value them for, right, like what is going to instill gratitude and appreciation in their employees, they think it's, in effect, the trading off the, the kind of sacrifice of the founder's own needs and goals and standards for the sake of the employee. And what I work to really shift their perspective on is, it, isn't it the opposite? Isn't it seeing the embodied, the, you know, the exemplification of a human being living their own best life and insisting on the best and the highest 
in this realm of what brings them meaning, right? That isn't it precisely being held to account and seeing the virtues in their leader, in their employer, right? That they themselves might then want to embody and to emulate. And it's really easy to get founders to see that when I flip, flip the roles, right? When I get them thinking about like, who have, who are they most grateful to of everybody that they've you know, encountered that they work for? Is it, is it the people who went easy on them, right? Is it the employers who, who cushioned their you know, negative feedback, who sent them home you know, early, who didn't ask too much of them? Or you know, is it the ones who pushed and challenged them and not for their sake, right? who were doggedly pursuing a vision and who brought them on board, who gave them the opportunity to be part of that, right? To collaborate on that, not as a favor, not as a mercy, but as a mutual value exchange. And then it becomes much clear that, okay, that, that is by far the greatest gift I can give to my staff, you know, to my, to my team. And I think as a team member, as the, the one in the, in the admirer's seat, I think being able to really embody that perspective ourselves, being able to really reverence and and give visibility and sanction to the virtues and the, the very selfish quest for excellence, right? That we find in our favorite people and the people who inspire us. I think it brings out the best in us and ourselves as much as it does in anybody else. And I think the, the fountainhead scene is probably just as salient here. The, the boy who sees Monadnock Valley and thanks Rourke for giving him the courage to face a lifetime. That's not about Rourke either, right? That scene is about is precisely about the boy. And I think that he feels that gratitude and expresses it is actually really crucial to what he gains in that scene. It strikes me that one thing that's interesting about the Galt-Reardon exchange Reardon says, if you understand that I acted for my own sake, you know that no gratitude is required. Galt says, that's why I thank you. Part of what's going on here is Galt is thanking Reardon for having the clarity of vision to actually pursue what's good for him. But part of it is also Reardon acted for his own sake to save Galt's life because Reardon saw that Galt's life was so valuable. So thank you, Reardon, for realizing how valuable I am to your life, which is in a way Reardon's gratitude as well. So he's thanking him for his gratitude. And another part of it is that he's thanking you, he's thanking Reardon because gratitude isn't required. It's not a duty. It's, it's a choice that uh, comes from seeing what's good for Galt's life. Galt realizes that it's good to see other people who see what's good about Galt. So there's a kind of a mutuality and harmony of interests here. And I think it, it relates back to our discussion about why uh, you can see gratitude as a, as a subset of, of pride, that, that a prideful person in Galt, if anyone, is an exemplar of pride, of, of wanting to see the best in all things uh, and desiring to desire the best in all things, well, gratitude is, is definitely going to be part of that for him. Yeah, I think to be able to love and express our love is perhaps the ultimate and the cleanest expression of self-esteem, right? And we see this, we see you know, people who are deeply insecure have the hardest time expressing their love and expressing it 
without strings attached, right? And I think that there's a, it's an act of courage to be able to say to someone, I love and admire you. And it's not, I'm not saying it in some instrumental, you know, either because I feel like I should, or I, I hope that it'll lead to some transactional benefit for me, you know, because it'll prop up your ego. I'm saying it as an act of valuing, as an expression of what matters to me in this life. There's no more selfish act than that. So Gina, as a, as a closing comment, is, is there anything you would like to express gratitude for this Thanksgiving? Aww. I think you and I will both have an opportunity to do that again tomorrow at the big Friendsgiving celebration that we're all gathering for in Austin. And I think that's also relevant to what I'm thankful for this year, having moved to Austin where you know, a lot of us have converged from our various coasts and and uh, walks of life and finding myself with the most just abundant community of like-minded friends and colleagues and people, families with children who play with my child and who, with whom I can exchange even the most you know, seemingly trivial, you know, parenting advice and, and woes, but also feel so metaphysically connected, right? And to be able to really experience my life as being embedded in a chosen community and the constant reminders that that brings of just, of just how good you know we have it and of just how much we all together have achieved and how much more we have to look forward to and just the fact that i get to see you all almost what every weekend give or take and i'm really grateful for for the lot of you and i'm sure i'll say it more eloquently tomorrow <laughs> i i second all of that uh agree with you completely I think the the thing I should I should express gratitude for since uh, we're here doing this podcast, which is going to be running on Thanksgiving, is I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunity that I get from the Ayn Rand Institute to uh, be able to interview people like you, to be able to reach wide audiences with uh, rational ideas, uh, Ayn Rand's ideas, which I think are in many ways a profound act of justice and therefore gratitude toward some of the people who've added such great value to our lives. And as a corollary to that, I should absolutely say that I'm very grateful for uh, the donors to the Ayn Rand Institute who make all of this possible and who, who make it possible because they see the value in what we do. And so they would maybe say what Reardon says, which is that they do what they do uh, for their own sake. Uh, no gratitude is required, but I will say to them, that is why I thank you. So Amen. thanks very much for this conversation, Gina. Thanks, uh, thanks. Uh, that is my gratitude to you. Uh, and we will, we will send this out. Uh, wishing the best of Thanksgivings to everyone who's watching. Thanks, Ben. And thank you all. And happy Thanksgiving. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. 
This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.